Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Good morning. Welcome to the first Sunday of spring, which means a couple things. One, I wore a colorful shirt versus uh, black, which I normally do, just to celebrate the the start of spring and the longer days. Um, Also, this means we're four weeks away from Easter, which means uh, there's a a Sunday coming that we get to celebrate every single week, but this is the one Sunday in the year that even in a city like ours, where people aren't necessarily willing to attend a gathering like this, there's a little bit more of a a likelihood that they would. And so um, what I'm asking everyone to do is prayerfully consider who it is you might invite to join us on Easter. Is Is it a neighbor? Is it a coworker? Is it a friend? Is a stranger that you met, a barista, but someone. Uh, we have inviter cards, and my commitment to you is that they will hear the gospel proclaimed that Sunday. They'll have a chance to respond to the gospel that Sunday. And so be prayerfully considering. I've already got a few people in my life, and if I'm like you, I make excuses for them. They're going to say no. They have no interest. And that may be true, but don't say no for somebody. You never know when God is stirring something in someone's life. If you look at your own story, when it is that you responded to him. Uh, today we're going to continue our series, Sojourners, where we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be picking back up in verses 13 through 21. So go ahead and open your Bible or turn the app on your phone to 1 Peter 1, uh, verse 13. Now, how many of you are old enough to remember Y2K? Can I, can I see a raise of hands? I know even some of our young adults actually probably don't remember it that much, uh, which is shows my, my aging and how I'm getting older. I remember I was 14 years old when Y2K took place, and each year leading up to the year 2000, it seemed like things got crazier and crazier in the preparation of what's going to happen when the clock strikes midnight and we enter into this thing called Y2K. Now, we all know now that nothing actually happened at all. I actually think we were 20 years too early. We should have been preparing for the year 2020. And so I think we got the calendar off a little bit and in our preparation of what was going to take place. But some people became so obsessed with the preparation that when nothing happened at all, they were almost disappointed. One of my college roommates, uh, his family met with a few other families. And what they decided to do is we're going to have a basement. It's going to be stocked full of all the essentials, survival gear. We've got canned goods. We've got toilet paper. We've got everything to survive for months, maybe even a year or years at that And when nothing happened at all, one lady from their group in all sincerity and seriousness said, it's kind of disappointing. After all this preparation, I was kind of looking forward to it. We all know a doomsday obsessed person in our lives. Perhaps that's somebody in the room this morning. Um, I I actually watched a documentary recently. It's pretty fascinating. It's on Netflix. And there's a group of former military bunkers. They actually look really, really cool. Uh, in South Dakota, and you can actually put a down payment of $5,000 to purchase one of these bunkers in, in preparation for a doomsday apocalypse. And so for five grand, maybe we can all throw in together and put a down payment on one, and we'll have our doomsday apocalypse ready for us to go in South Dakota. Now, as Christ followers, this is not how we are to prepare for the future. This is not how we are to prepare to live our lives in light of the future. And so this morning, Peter's going to come in, and he's going to show us, this is how you are to live as you're preparing for what is to come. And here's the question he's going to answer for us. So keep this question in your mind. 
How does God expect us to live as sojourners, as strangers, as exiles in this moment? Now let's reflect where we've been for just a minute. Peter's just spent 12 verses celebrating what God has done for us as believers in Jesus Christ. He starts out featuring the saving work of the Father, Son, and Spirit in the first couple of verses. He's emphasized this certain inheritance of believers in Christ in, in the middle section. He's focusing on their love and joy that they can have in God for, for one another and for God himself. And he's highlighted how privileged it is, if you remember back last week, how privileged it is to live in this day and time as God's promises are being fulfilled. Remember, we looked at all those Old Testament prophecies that were pointing to Jesus coming. And now we're living, his original audience and us today are living in that moment, the fulfillment of that moment. And so now, what Peter's going to do this week, he's going to exhort these sojourners. He's going to say, in light of all of that, in light of all of this truth, this is how you are to go and to live your life. Let me pray for us and then we'll get into our message for this morning. God, I thank you again for an opportunity to gather as your church. God, both for those who are in the room, those who are viewing online, those who will go back and listen to the podcast or view it online later. God, remove me out of the way. We know that your word is sufficient in and of itself. And so God, if nothing else, let your word be powerful today. Let it be life to us today. God, there's some hard truths that we're looking at, but God, we want to have faith and trust in you, that you said it, and so we believe it. God, show us how we are to live this out here in our day and age. It's by your, na your name and your power. Amen. All right, so living now in light of the future, our first point this morning is that we are called to set, can you get the next slide, please? We are called to set our hope fully on God's grace. Verse 13, Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Anytime we encounter the word, therefore, scholars tell us we need to ask the question, why is the therefore, therefore? Well, here, therefore, refers to the salvation blessings that he's already explained in verses 3 through 12. If you remember, I've told you each week, 3 through 12 is one long sentence in Greek, and we broke it down into about four different messages. And so Peter's saying, therefore, in light of what I've already shown you in the previous section, you are to think and act now in a certain way. Now, when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, it's natural for us to seek something or someone else to save us. Okay? Imagine you're in the water and you're in Troutdale. I love the Sandy River in Troutdale, but it's flowing fast. There's a reason they've got lifeguards out there. And imagine you get thrown into the water and all of a sudden you kind of find yourself getting sucked underneath. Like, it's natural for you to say, like, wave your arms and help, help, I need help. And you need someone to come and save you. But we do this in all areas of our lives. We do this with our finances. We do this with our relationships. We do this with our careers. But when that thing that you're doing that with becomes your greatest goal and your greatest hope, here's what happens. That person or that thing turns into your functional savior, which sets up a false god and God and a great bit of disappointment. And so Peter is coming in. He's saying, therefore, in light of these things, you're to live in a certain way. He uses this phrase. He says, 
Preparing your minds for action. Now in Greek, this literally means gird up the loins of your mind. Now what in the world does that mean? <laughs> that doesn't really translate to us today. But at this time, this context, it would have made all the sense in the world. They wore these long robes. Most of us are just wearing pants every day. They wore these long robes. And Peter paints a picture for us. That's a picture of a man who's, who's, who's preparing to run or do some kind of exercise. So if you're wearing a long robe, that's going to make it difficult and challenging. And so what he would do is he would take his robe and he would gather it up between his legs and he would tuck it into his belt. That way he's prepared now to run. He's prepared to, to go into action for whatever he's called to do. And so Peter is saying, setting your hope on God, fully on God, it requires something of you. It requires a mental preparation, a mental resolve, and disciplined thinking. In other words, what he's calling us to do by girding up your loins, he's, he's saying, remove anything in your life that would hinder movement. Get it out of the way if that is becoming distracting to you so that you can prepare your mind for action. So whatever those things, there can be good things in your life, but if they're distracting you from what you're called to do as a follower of Jesus, as a sojourner, then he says you need to remove those things by preparing your mind for action. But how do we do that? That's really, that's really that's tough, that's challenging. Well, Peter comes in and tells us how to do that. He says, by being sober-minded. Now, when you, you hear that, when you hear sober-minded, we typically think of drunkenness. We think of alcohol, like, oh, okay, don't drink too much. And that's a helpful framework for us, but the phrase is actually all-encompassing. He's saying anything that would inhibit us from being spiritually alert, that we are to remove those things. And any, any kind of laziness, which kind of dulls our minds, where it causes us to go into this path where we're much easier and prone to sin, so could it be alcohol? Absolutely. Could it be drugs? Yes, it can be both illegal drugs and legal drugs. Can it be our thoughts, our attitudes? Can it be sex? Can it be any addiction of any kind? Once again, it can be good things. But he's saying, be sober-minded. If there's, these things are becoming distracting in your life, you know, I think about my children sometimes, and we have an Xbox now, and we say it's okay to play the video game sometimes, but not all the time. Because I can imagine that, that guy who's my age, 36, in his basement of his parents' house and just playing video games all the time. Like, like be sober-minded. Like, you might need to get rid of the Xbox, bro. Or you might need to hit pause or get rid of your games for a little bit. Whatever it is so that you can be prepared for action. And so being sober-minded, what it is saying is be able to think clearly, kind of clear-headed. If you had COVID, I don't know if everyone in the room had COVID or not, but when I had COVID, that was like the brain fog I heard about. And then I experienced it, and I was like, I can't think clear-headed. Like, there's no way I can continue in life. <laughs> I cannot think straight and, and I can't focus at all. They say be clear-headed, be sober-minded so that you'll have proper judgment in your daily lives. Because when you're distracted by the things, even those good things, our judgment is, is skewed and it's, it's not proper. And he finally tells us to set your hope, to so prepare for action, be sober-minded, and then set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, believe the gospel because God said it and have faith and trust that God will deliver on his promise. So we see the Old Testament promises that Peter, Peter's really like looking back to the Old Testament all throughout here. That's why the Old Testament and New Testament really go together. He's saying, look at these promises that God gave, but not only God give these promises, God actually comes in and, prom and fulfills the promise that he made. 
And so in this opening verse, he's helping us know how to sojourn well in the here and now, in the moment of what we're living. But he's also helping us know how to live for the future, which brings us to our second point in our next slide. Point number two, we are called to be holy. Let's pick up in verse 14 through 16. So as obedient children, did my three boys hear that? As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, once again, this audience Peter's talking to is already Christians. And so he assumes, since we are children of God, that we will be obedient. I mean, he just spent 12 verses reminding us of that reality, that you are children of God, so as a result, you are to be obedient. And then he uses this phrase, he says, you are not to be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, we're not to be conformed to our former way of life before we came to Christ. If you are a Christian, now none of us are perfect, we're in this big process they call sanctification, but you should be able to pause and look back at your life before you became a Christian and recognize there's a difference now that you are a Christian. So he says, do not be conformed to your former passions, your former way of life. And he refers to our pre-Christian state as our former ignorance. What he's saying is those days are done. As a result, you can no longer live that way. It's, it's, it's essentially saying it's impossible to go on living that way. Now, we all know we have this ongoing battle with sin, right? We still have that sin nature, and we fall back into these things. But he's saying, if you are truly a Christian, and we've already looked at the tested genuineness of your faith a few weeks ago, but if you're in Christ, it's impossible to remain in your former ignorance, because you have the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you have this thing called conviction. You'll realize, man, I messed up again, or I did wrong again. But you cannot remain in that. Those days are done, and they're behind you. And how we conduct ourselves in this world reveals to whom we are actually dedicated. And so are we being conformed more and more to Christ, this call to be holy? Or are we being conformed to our former way of life? In verse 15, we see this positive command. To be holy. Now, God our Father is our example of holiness. Like, nobody else is. Not your parents, not your grandparents, not your spouse. When you, when you look, God is our example of holiness. And God also empowers us by his power to pursue a holy living. And so what he's doing here is showing us this contrast when you put the two verses together. He's saying, there's your old nature, your old sin life. And that's been now put to death, and you've replaced it with something. You've replaced it with this holiness, which is why God calls us to be holy. Here's, this isn't a perfect example, but this is the best one I could come up with this week. Think about singleness. Okay, this one's for Ben and Julia specifically this week. <laughs> and when you're single, you can do anything you want whenever you want, even if you're dating somebody in a relationship. Yeah, you might get an argument, but it's like, I'm single, nothing, like I don't have this obligation to you. But here's what happens. The moment you get married, the moment you say, I do, everything about your life changes. It changes everything about you. It reshapes your affections. It reshapes your sexuality. It even reshapes your character. And so what Peter is trying to get us to see is that everything about your relationship with God should reshape everything about your life and how you live now as a result. It should look very different from what your life looked like before. Your priorities, 
your, your, your character, your, your belief system, all of it should look totally different because of what Christ has done in you. And so the command is really clear. It says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So what does this mean for us as a church? We've got three things. The first thing is we have to resist conformity within ourselves. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so the question you can ask yourself this morning, what does my conduct show about my true hope? Where am I pl placing my, my, my true hope in my daily life? The second thing this means for us as a church is we have to resist conforming to the world. Think about it, the world has unrestrained passions. And not only does the world permit us to live however we want, the world actually applauds when you live contrary to the way that God set life up to be. So the question we can ask ourselves is, do I look more like the world? Or do I look more like my Father in heaven? And then the third way is we have to submit to our Holy Father by allowing God to conform us. So we have to ask ourselves, in whom else or what else am I placing my hope and allowing my conduct to be directed so that we can be holy because he is holy? This brings us to our third point. We are called to be faithful. Pick up verse uh, 17. It says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So Peter's now introducing us to the motivation for holy living. He's called us to be holy. Now he says, here's how's the motivation for it. He said, it's a God who judges impartially. Here's what that means. God is going to judge everyone based on who they are because he is just and holy. Now, that may not sound like good news for us, but hopefully I can unpack that for us. Because if you're like me, you're like, oh, great. I'm being judged for every single thought, action, and thing that I've ever done. And I know we, we focus a lot on God's grace, and I'm a huge grace guy. And we talk about God's grace week in and week out, and we're going to talk about that here in a, a minute as well. But God's grace doesn't cancel God's justice. In fact, his holiness commands his justice. So we don't believe in universalism. So I don't believe that every single person that was ever born on this planet will be saved, unfortunately. Scripture points us to that reality. We don't get to look at God and have like a special pass. We don't get to be like, God, I'm your boy. God, I grew up in church. God, I got saved at this age. God, remember my baptism? Or, or, or God, remember, I went overseas for you. God, I moved across the country. I'm planning a church for you. You're not going to hold me accountable, are you? I can do whatever I want. That's not what it says. Romans 2.11 says, for God shows no partiality. So every single one of us will be held accountable. And what Peter wants us to see is that we'll all stand before God and we have to give an account for our life. We have to give an account for our actions. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil which is why we are to conduct ourselves with fear 
throughout the time of our exile. Now, the concept of fear of God is common in Scripture. But I would say the concept of fear is also very commonly misunderstood by many Christians. I think our generation today, we are tempted to treat God lightly. Instead of understanding God for who he has revealed himself to be in his word, this is what our culture likes to do and, and many of our, us in our generation. We like to create what I call a little g-god, a God who's created in our image, the kind of God that we can manage. And so we'll say, well, this no longer applies, and this was a different time, and this doesn't, and we'll, we'll take these things out to kind of, you know, instead of God forming and creating us, we kind of form and create the God that we want, who makes sin permissible, who allows us to do these things where there is no accountability. But this is not what Scripture teaches. Now, the fear he's talking about here, before I'm misunderstood, it's not a paralyzing terror, like, oh, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? What's, what's God going to do to me? But it's a fear of God's discipline. It's a fear of God's displeasure for our lives. It's, it's a reverence in all of who God is, his holiness, which should characterize our lives as believers as we sojourn on this earth. And fear of God is not inconsistent with loving him or knowing that he loves us. Just look at the Old Testament of believers. If you've never read scripture, you need to read it. Like, it's there. And Peter reminds us that God who is holy will Judge sin. And he's pointing out that this is for your good. Whether you realize it or not, I know the fear of God and the judgment of sin, like none of this is popular in our culture in our day, but it's the foundation for a holy living that he's calling us to live here during our time of exile, during our time of sojourning. Now hold that thought into the fear. We're going to kind of come back after we look at verses 18 and 19. It says, Knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So now Peter's getting to the heart of our salvation. How can we, as sinners, be drawn to the holiness of God? It's redemption. We have been redeemed. And he says that Christ's sacrifice, among other things, has, has broken down the, what, what's called the, the generational sins. He talks about the things that we inherit, the futile ways, the sins that we inherited from our forefathers. Those are these things called generational sins. Think about the sins of parents and grandparents. They're often repeated in later generations. I can think about my own family. On the Boyd side, there's, there's, there's the sins of my grandfather that, that, that my uncles and my father re repeated and then my father, by God's grace, became a Christ follower. And the, that generational sin, at least in my line of the family, when I come along, has now been broken. And by God's grace and by his mercy on, on my line of it, we have not had to experience that. It, it didn't get carried on to me. And so we see there's this remarkable change that's brought by conversion to Christ. And where is it evident? He's saying it's evident in the abandonment of these things. If your family's always been known for these these sins for generations, and then you're the first one in your family, the, what we call a first-generation Christian, that then you see the abandonment of these, you flee these things, you leave these things, you leave this old pattern of life that you inherited from your forefathers. And for some reason, you look at your life, and you say, but, but I've, I've continued to conduct myself in that way. 
I've continued to carry those things on. Or if I've continued to turn to my former passions and it's, it's, it's kind of taking over my life and it's taking root and it's, I don't really see much evidence of God in my life. Then it would suggest that your hope is not really in God. It would suggest that your hope is actually in something else. Peter, again, he's returned to this. He's already talked about silver or gold previously. And he's, he's pointing out that this spiritual reality that's more precious than these metals of, of silver or gold, things that will decay, things that will not last. And then Peter tells us, it all builds. He says, but the precious blood of Christ. What he's saying is that Christ's blood is more precious than these perishable things of silver and gold. The blood of Christ is the clear outward sign. His life blood was poured out. This is the sacrificial death. That was the price of our redemption. So he's kind of pointing back to where our redemption has even come from. That it's more precious than these things and that it's lasting. That now you can be redeemed. We have to remember, he's, he's talking to a group of Christians here. So he's reminding them of this. You might be tempted to want to get silver and gold and all these things in this life, but they're going to decay. But I've already given you my salvation. And so as a result, you have been redeemed. And so there, he's now, what he's done is he's built. Hopefully I can make the connection for us. The reason for the call to fear from verse 17 is now given in verse 18 and 19. We are called to fear, not in a condemnation sense, because if you're in Christ, this isn't possible. We're called to fear in a sense of awe and reverence. Paul Tripp. He said, Christ's sacrifice satisfied the Father's anger so that, as his child, you will receive his discipline, but you need not fear his wrath. You see, discipline is an instrument of God's grace in our lives. Discipline is a continuation of his work of transforming your heart and life. And it's not God turning his back on us, as you might think sometimes, but rather it's God turning his face of grace toward us and time and time again until it's finished. And so the fact that God would discipline you is evidence of his grace in your life, but we don't have to fear his wrath. And he's going to tell us why. If you are a believer, if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, whatever terminology you want to use, you have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. You can look all the way back at, at verse 2 when we started this. And when the day of final judgment arrives, here's what's going to happen. God will pass over us. Why? Because he's already purchased us. Not with something that is, is perishable, such as silver or gold, but with the imperishable blood of Jesus. Jesus has already fully paid for our sins so that we never have to again face the ultimate penalty of our sin. We never have to fear God's wrath because Jesus has already accomplished everything on our behalf. That is good news. That is something that we can celebrate. But before we move on, I always want to address the unbeliever either in the room or those tuning in. Scripture also teaches us that those who remain in their sin will face judgment at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why? Because God is holy and God punishes all sin. But even the fact that you're hearing this message in this moment or going back and listening to the podcast in this moment, in your car, it's an act of God's grace to you. 
Because Christ's blood was also shed to pay for the judgment that is rightfully yours. The only difference between you and anyone else is the recognition and acknowledgement of needing Jesus in order to be saved. And so if you're hearing this, rather than getting angry and being upset with God, it's not too late. You can give your life to him today and your fear of God will go from one of a future judgment that is rightfully yours to one of a transformative grace where you're going to look more and more like him. So church, this is why we're inviting people to Easter so that all may receive and hear. This is why we care about the people in our city because based on our studies and our stats, we have a lot of people who are, who are like the walking dead and they're walking to a path of a future judgment that's not going to look so good for them. But it's not too late. And that's what God has called us to go and to do. Brings us to our fourth and final point this morning. Verses 20 and 21. We are called to confidence. Since he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This means that God planned before the foundation of the world or before the creation of the world, there's another way to say that, when he would send Jesus, who was foreknown, and he chose to reveal him at this time when these believers lived for the sake of you. Did you just catch what he just said? It's easy to miss. It's easy to just kind of read through verses and not catch it. What this means is we can't think of God's plan of salvation as his backup plan. We can't go, man, God, you had this plan and it all went wrong. <laughs> Adam and Eve really, royally screwed this up for all of us. And then you had to kind of go back to the drawing board and go, well, what can I do? Well, I exist as the Father, Son, and Spirit, and there's the Holy Trinity and perfect. And I, I, All right, let's draw some sticks. All right, Jesus, you got selected, man. You got to go down. You got to do this. No, that's not what it says. It says that God's plan to save us is the plan. It has always been the plan. It was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So before he even created Adam and Eve, before he created the world as we know it, this was the plan for God to send Jesus to save us. And so God promised it, God delivered it, and he provided it. And Peter brings his whole section to a conclusion in his main point of verses 20 and 21. So that your faith and hope are in God. Because it's in God and God alone that we can live this holy life that he's calling us to live. And so after telling his readers in verses 14 and 16 to, to live holy lives and to, that we're to fear God's discipline and that he redeemed us at a great cost of Christ's life, he concludes by reminding us that the God whom they are to fear as judge is also the God whom they are to trust as Savior. He says that God planned our redemption before the creation of the world. That God sent forth his son for their sake and for our sake and the sake of the world. And that he is now the one whom we depend on. And that he raised Christ from the dead and that he glorified him. And he is the one who are to place all of our trust and faith and hope. And so the God whom Christians are to fear, also the God whom they are to trust forever. You think about trust. Trust isn't easy. Like even some of us, like it's, we have to get to know each other before we trust on a certain level. But God's always followed through in his word. God's always followed through in his promises, which is why we can trust him. And the God who has planned and done for them, only good from all of eternity. 
That God's plan has been enacted all throughout this. That's why I love when we look at the whole entirety of Scripture. When you look at Genesis all the way to Revelation and how it's being fulfilled has been fulfilled. But even here that we know before the start of the writing of Scripture that this was always the plan to save us. And so the gospel, this good news, is the primary motivation for our holiness as we sojourn in a hostile world, as we sojourn in, in a world that wants to live contrary to a call to live holy. And so we don't live as those who are preparing for doomsday destruction. Will an end come? Yes. Do we know exactly what it's going to look like? No. I'm confident that Jesus will return because he tells us he will return. Will it look like chaos and war? I don't know. Will we still be here? I don't know. Some of us want to be and some of us are freaked out and don't want to be. But what I do know is that we don't have to prepare as those preparing for a doomsday destruction. Because we've already been delivered from the bondage of our former way of life. We've already been delivered from our, our bondage and our sin. And we're now to display and live out our Father's holiness. And become more and more like Him in this journey toward the day we meet Him face to face. And when He welcomes us as, as our loving Father, He embraces us with His arms. And so church, let me pray for us into that end this morning. And then we're going to respond in a song of worship to our holy and loving Father. God, we thank you for loving us. God, we thank you for enacting a plan before the creation of the world. God, it's easy for us to think that that was, that was a mistake and there was a backup plan. But God, that this has always been the plan. The plan has always been to seek and to save and redeem your people. God, we thank you for sending Jesus to make a way. God, that we can now live a holy life empowered by you. God, we pray for those in our city, those in our sphere of influence. God, that the next several weeks, especially leading up to Easter, God, when people, it's at least a little bit more in their mind. God, we have a conversation with that neighbor, with that coworker, with that friend. And God, we need to take the opportunity and share the gospel with them, or God, we invite them to join us on Easter to hear this good news proclaimed. God, we ask for forgiveness and repent, God, where we fail to live up to your call to live holy. God, we live in a reverent awe and fear of you. But we thank you for the good news that as those in Christ, we don't have to fear the ultimate destruction and wrath of God because you've already paid for that in Jesus. And in that, we can celebrate. It's in your name, in your power. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.